We'll continue our reading through verse 8. We are returning to the theme of work this morning, just as I anticipate now we'll be returning to many other themes previously touched upon in Ecclesiastes as we continue to make our way forward in this book. This is one of the great differences between the way that I preached Ecclesiastes from this pulpit 29 years ago and uh, the way we're approaching it today. The first time I preached through Ecclesiastes, I selected all of those passages from beginning to end that had to do with one theme or another, work or wisdom or folly or time and so on, grouped them together and had a single sermon on each of those uh, topics. Uh, This time, we're simply going from the beginning to the end of the book, so there may be some repetition. But then that's okay, isn't it? Um, And perhaps even better, since that's the way the book itself is written. So I thank you for your patience at times uh, when we might seem to be getting repetitive in Ecclesiastes. Apparently, the Lord wants to hear some things uh, much more than just once uh, to learn the lesson. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I know, (laughs) as for me, I need that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the proportions in your word that uh, in the infinite wisdom of God that you have inspired these uh, words, you carried along these writers by your Holy Spirit to say what you intend uh, in the quantity and proportion that you intend to say it. Open our hearts to receive all that you have to say, and we thank you for such love That love we sang just a little while ago this morning, that love amazing of yours that uh, has expressed the divine mind to the human here in the pages of Holy Writ. By the power of your Holy Spirit at work, now we pray that's exactly what will happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Ebenezer Scrooge. (laughs) I need only say that name, right? And you immediately have brought to mind the miserly protagonist of uh, Charles Dickens' famous 1843 tale, A Christmas Carol. And you may remember how colorfully Dickens describes This character, a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, 
a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner was Scrooge. When the author has finished introducing him, we all know why he goes to work at the counting house on Monday morning, don't we? And stays late into the dark evening. He was, as Dickens tells us, at bottom a covetous man. He wanted what he wanted, he desired what he desired, and it was advantage, it was advancement, and all of it at whatever cost to his fellow man. The sight of Scrooge actually helps me to understand why Solomon has gone, I don't know exactly why, but it seems reasonable that this is why Solomon has gone from the topic of oppression to this one. Oppression and covetousness, or Envy, as our translation has it here, are often fine, familiar bedfellows, aren't they? The former rises from the latter and is often the direct product of it. Now, it is certainly a bit of hyperbole that Kohalef is using here in our text today to say that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. But I wonder if you could seriously argue otherwise in the main. Is it not plain that people today are largely motivated by less than the purest of motives in their work, regardless of the nature or the level of their job? Now, it may not be the case uh, that everyone around you in the workplace answers fully to the description of squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, and clutching. But when it comes to the heart, when it comes to the motive for so much of the work that takes place around you, envy or desire for what others have plays a pretty fundamental part. We are a culture of Joneses trying to keep up with the Joneses while they're trying to keep up with the other Joneses. We know why Scrooge went into the counting house on Monday morning, but let me ask you now, why do you go to work on Monday morning? And not only those of you who have I guess we could call it a conventional job. I mean, all of you, why do you do the work that you do, whether that is in the office or behind the wheel or on the line or in the shop or in the field or over the sink of dishes or at the diaper table or at the kitchen table? Whatever work it is that you do, why do you do it? Why? What's the point? These are the fundamental sort of questions the Bible presses upon us, isn't it? All the time. Since we live the lion's share of our lives in our hearts, and as we saw not long ago uh, at work, we will do well to ask the Lord to search those hearts of ours, to reveal any offensive ways that He finds there, and to lead us in the way of a way everlasting, beginning with our work, whatever that work may be. As I see it, these few verses of Scripture teach us about the motive for our work and also the right balance 
of work in our lives with other things, with specifically with rest. We are living in a dog-eat-dog world, and nowhere is that more evident to be seen than in your work. How shall we not only survive in this environment, but actually thrive as Christians? Well, first, we must check our motive. Back to the question, why do you go to work on Monday morning? Or why do you do your day-to-day labors? Solomon says that as he surveys the workplace, he sees envy at work. Uh, that is, unhappy rivalry. Now, to be sure, there are many motivations for work. We, we know that people need food, and, and so they work to provide for themselves and and for those who may be dependent on them. And, and we know of artists who do their work because uh, they just love what they do with such a passion. And Kohelet is not dismissing the mixture of motives behind work. But there is no denying that envy drives much work. And perhaps today the Lord is identifying. He's laying his finger on this quiet but real force at work in you. In your heart. Even on the job itself, there is rivalry, isn't there? You know of what I speak. Sometimes unspoken, sometimes blatant and overt. Several years ago, Harvard Business Review featured an article on envy in the workplace. Fascinating article. The the writers begin with this anecdote. As you enter your recently promoted colleague's office... You notice a photograph of his beautiful family in their new vacation home. He casually adjusts his custom suit and mentions his upcoming board meeting and speech in Davos. On the one hand, you want to feel genuinely happy for him and celebrate his successes. And on the other, you hope he falls into a crevasse in the Alps. (laughs) Very, very accurately, they observe that envy, what they describe as the distress of people, what they feel when others get what they want, is universal. Everyone at all levels is vulnerable to envy. I get a kick out of how one trucker envies another trucker at, at, uh, at the company because his truck goes 72 and my only goes 71. Or his is uh, 2022 and, and I have to drive this 2019. It's just one mile an hour on the cruise control creates untold amounts of envy and, uh, and gossip and struggle. Everyone at all levels is vulnerable to envy. Later in the article, they describe how when other successes in the workplace bother you, you become ruminative. You obsess over interactions with rivals. Compare your rewards and overanalyze even the fleeting praise that your boss bestows on others. Your least generous self rises, surfaces as you try to boost your fragile ego at your rival's 
expense. I wonder if in whatever work setting you find yourself, you have experienced and felt and perhaps fed those same passions. And of course, the reason you may go to work in the first place is not envy of your coworkers, but of your neighbors. It's very subtle but powerful, a bent of our hearts to desire the car, the boat, the, the jewelry, the clothes, the vacations, what, what have you of those around you. And so, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Here the preacher is cautioning us against being motivated by rivalry, by an unhealthily competitive spirit or a desire to enjoy what others have through our labor, whether that is labor at the high-powered firm or at your kitchen table, uh, helping your children with their lessons and homework. You, you see, see, envy can, can include things like uh, business trips and vacations, but you may also even envy your neighbor's children and therefore teach your own, educate your own children out of little more than a spirit of rivalry. So your children are reading that? Well, my children are reading this. And subtly but really, even your schooling efforts come to be motivated by little more than a desire to outshine someone else, your neighbor, who has now become in your heart your rival. In your work, my dear brothers and sisters, beware the envy that still resides residually. What we just heard about in the assurance of pardon a moment ago, that sin that still resides in your fallen heart. Envy is pervasive. It is persistent. It's been described as the earliest and most pervasive vice in the biblical narrative. You remember, it was Satan's envy that caused him to fall. Envy was at the root uh, from which the first murder sprung. The Philistines envied Isaac, Rachel, her sister, Joseph's brothers envied him. Job was surely right. Vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. So the preacher got it right, didn't he? It's, it's vanity when, when labors out of a motive of envy. And, and since we might say with the Lord, motive is everything, we are going to want to cleanse our hearts and examine ourselves with questions like the ones we've been asked this morning. Why am I doing this? Why? What's my motive? Lord, search my heart, try me, know my thoughts, See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And the way everlasting, my brothers and sisters, when it comes to your labor, to your work, is, as Paul puts it to the Christians in Colossae, heartily, doing your work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So when you and I go to work tomorrow, 
We must have one motive, one reason, one thought. In a word, Jesus. We're serving our Lord. That's what we're doing. That's why we're going. That's why we're doing this. He is our master. His pleasure is our desire. His glory is our motive. His reward, our blessing. Remember Eric Little? I run feeling the pleasure of God. Well, just change the verb. I work feeling the pleasure of God. You see now how, how approaching your, your labor, your job, your work, whatever it is, in that way as service to Jesus, anticipating His everlasting reward, it just banishes envy from your labor and causes it to rise above vanity. It's all about motive, isn't it? Whatever your work, whatever your labor, check your motive, dear ones, and I will check mine. And together, let's ask the Lord to purify our hearts in this matter and so wonderfully dignify our work. Second, let us pursue a proper balance in our lives. A proper balance between work and rest. There's a temptation to which we might fall, after all, in the dog-eat-dog-rat-race world in which we're living, and that would be simply to check out. This is what the fool does in verse 5, isn't it? He, he, he says, I don't want anything to do with this, this work-a-day, competitive environment, this envy-driven, backstabbing, power-grasping, frantic rivalry, so I'm going to do nothing. I'm just going to coast. Well, I, I suppose he avoids the workaholic uh, tendencies of the covetous, envious crowd who strive after wind, but he's fallen off the other side of the horse, hasn't he, in the process? He folds his hands, by which the Scripture means he refuses to work. He reminds us of the sluggard in something else Solomon wrote. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. But what does he do with those folded hands? Did you catch that as we were reading? It's kind of gross. <laughs> he turns them into a hand sandwich. Not a ham sandwich, a hand sandwich. He gnaws on his knuckles. He devours his digits. Verse 5. He eats his own flesh. Colorful <laughs> expression, isn't it? What the preacher means is that he only ruins himself. One paraphrase puts it this way. It says, his sloth is slow suicide. It's self-destructive. Remember what happens to the man in Solomon's Proverbs, the man who, who wants a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest? Remember the rest of that verse? Poverty comes on him like a robber and want like an armed man. How does that happen? Well, it's not rocket science. The first thing he does is he burns through what he has in the bank. Whatever money he had stored up in the account, he runs until it's empty. 
But worse than that, he eats away at what he is. Notes one of my commentaries his idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is, eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. What is the lazy sluggard, the fool, to use Solomon's word, doing? He's confusing idleness for quietness. Koheleth gives us the true definition, uh, the true alternative, rather, to both of those foolish ways of the rat race on the one hand and hibernation on the other. And it is this, verse 6 a handful of quietness. A handful of quietness. A handful of quietness, which says Solomon, is better than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Here's the balance, dear flock. That's where I got that word, what, what I think we're after. To pick up on the cadence of chapter 3, there is a time to work and there is a time to rest. There's a time to work and there's a time to rest. Instead of being workaholics, as people are commonly called, who make work their God only to be betrayed, by the way, bitterly by their idol, you may be a worker who is content, who works hard when it's time to work and rest when it's time to rest and enjoy that handful of quietness. Instead of two grasping, greedy hands, he has one hand open and extended, and the Lord fills it, not with stuff, but with quietness. We might put it with this way, with one hand he works diligently to the glory of God, enjoying the reward that God himself gives to such diligent labor. And with the other, he, well, I suppose you can fill in the blank, whatever that form of rest and quietness takes, you know, hospitality, hobbies, maybe helping the oppressed perhaps, or just plain relaxing. His handful of quietness. Dear ones, listen carefully. You do not need to climb the ladder at work. And you do not need to accumulate stuff. And you do not need to outshine your coworker. Or outdo your neighbor. But you do need rest. And the best witness to that fact is that the Lord has actually built it into your life. He's built rest into your week. Our week. He has built the Sabbath day into every week of your life and he has given it to you as a gift to be received and observed for whose benefit for his <laughs> for yours God did not make you for the Sabbath he made the Sabbath for you God gives you rest be still and know that I am God.
That man or woman who is so caught up in work seven days a week simply has no time to know God. No time to be still and know that I am God. And it is, it, it's that man or woman that loses out, isn't it? That's why it breaks my heart. And I'm not using hyperbole. It breaks my heart as your pastor when I see you sometimes treating the fourth commandment as if it were the only optional one out of the ten. Many Christians over the years have thought it necessary to surrender the Sabbath for some sort of advancement. Uh, for the promotion at work, for example. For the place for your kid on the ball team. But oftentimes for your studies. You who are students, who feel compelled to study on Sunday because you've just got to have that A on Monday. Christians who just are convinced they have to work on the paper today. I remember an old pastor telling me, John, if God can create the world in six days, you can get your homework done in six days. <laughs> and caught up in the rat race, you're the loser. Tell me, you who have graduated from college now, would your life be any different today if you had settled for a B instead of an A? Is anybody reading your transcripts now? Does anybody even care? What did you give up to have the first letter of the alphabet on your report card instead of the second? What did it cost you? What is it costing you now? We confessed it just this morning, and I will tell you to my own amazement, this happened so many times. I did not choose that confession of sin this morning because this was going to come up in the sermon, but you just said it to the Lord. You just said, I had desecrate your Sabbath. Why? You told him why. Because I don't trust you, God. I don't trust you to give me rest. Well, dear ones, God did not build you to work seven days a week. He did not build you for workplace politics. But he did build you for rest in him, working and resting, working and resting in him. And he who built you also has given you the owner's manual. Remember, you're not your own. Don't forget that. You are not your own. You aren't. You don't belong to yourself. You've been bought with a price. The highest price ever paid for anybody ever at any time. At the blood of God. Now he's given you the instructions, I say. And here it is. We're looking at it this morning in his word. The owner's manual. Work and rest, it says. Those two together are the ingredients of the antidote 
to envy. Working hard at your job, yes, and observing rest. Time working and time with your friends and with your family and with the Lord. And tell me, by the way, what is it of theirs, of your neighbors, of your co-workers that you have to envy, really? Think about it. The big house, the fancy car, the bulging bank account. <laughs> you want to talk about vanity. A puff of wind, a breath, they're gone. All those things. Haven't we already established beyond all doubt the emptiness of all of that? And then a dark future waits for him who insisted on receiving his good things in this life. Remember what Jesus taught us in this very sanctuary from this very pulpit that one who lays up treasures for himself on earth is not rich towards God. An old anonymous expositor of Ecclesiastes wrote long ago, Envy thou not the fool's paradise here that hath hell at the end of it. But you, Christian, you have everything. You know this, don't you? You have everything. Even the child of God living in scraping poverty possesses gospel treasure. As Paul puts it, having nothing, yet possessing everything. Try that one on your boss sometime. You are in the workplace. You are the best. You are the hardest working, most diligent worker in sight. It's true. And yet, you live by an entirely different set of priorities altogether and pre for rewards infinitely beyond the best that the world can offer. Your master, his name starts with a capital M, Master. As the Pilgrim Father John Cotton described you, long, long ago. There is another combination of virtues strangely mixed in every lively, holy Christian, and that is diligence in worldly business and yet deadness to the world. Such a mystery as none can read but they that know it. Though he labor most diligently in his calling, yet his heart is not set upon these things. Amen.